Hey, Media People podcast listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, then you're going to love our newsletter, appropriately named the Media People Newsletter. Delivered right to your inbox, each edition is a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or go to mediapeople.beehive.com. That's B-E-E-H-I-I-V. Thanks for listening to the Media People podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Science has always played a role in marketing, whether it be focus groups, surveys, or any other forms of research. But the relationship between the two disciplines has grown increasingly closer over the years. So much that it's formalized the role of marketing science plays in advertising. And PhD Canada has entrusted Matt Devlin to handle this for their roster of clients. Matt is their first managing director of marketing science, where he's responsible for connecting media investments back to their results. An Ottawa native, Matt left Capital City to attend a university in Toronto, but unlike most students who enter with a major, Matt used his first year to dabble in a variety of different classes before settling on a degree in cinema studies and semiotics. After graduation, Matt relocated to the United Kingdom, taking his first role in media at Zenith Optimedia's London office. He moved back to Canada and continued with Zenith at their Toronto office. He was let go by Zenith, but picked up by PhD, where he continues today. Matt Devlin stops by to chat about growing up in Ottawa, being the youngest of five siblings, the differences between Canadian and UK media life, and the increasing role marketing science plays in advertising. So PhD is a global media agency uh, with footprint all around the world. Uh, And as the head of the marketing science team here in Toronto, my job is to work with our clients to figure out how advertising is working for them uh, and where they should go next. Um, So we help our clients design how they're going to measure the impact of advertising. We support them in data aggregation and analysis. We support them in the interpretation of that data. Um, And uh, we also tend to overlap with some of the ad tech, martech, programmatic space as well, um, helping those teams and collaborating around an analysis uh, in those uh, platforms as they evolve quickly too. Matt, thanks so much for dropping by today. As always, we go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I grew up in Ottawa, the nation's capital. So what was life like for you growing up in the nation's capital? Because I think you spent your entire life there prior to university. Yeah, I lived there until I was 18. Uh, it's a great place to grow up. It's a beautiful city. Um, and there's tons of outdoor space. Uh, yeah, I, I sometimes think of it wistfully, but, uh, from the age of nine, I knew I wanted to move to a bigger city. And, uh, so I ended up in Toronto eventually. Tell me a little bit more about your life growing up because you had an interesting family dynamic. Tell us a little bit about the distance between yourself and your siblings. I'm sort of in the second set of kids. The my parents had four kids in pretty quick succession, and then a 12-year gap to me, which uh, meant that by the time I was four or five or so, uh, my siblings had all moved on to university. 
Um, and that was kind of neat. It meant that my parents were pretty, you know, worn in. I wasn't the first child, you know, with them hovering over me kind of thing. But I also had older brothers and sisters to look up to and, you know, introduce me to the right kind of music and that kind of thing. Okay, so I was going to ask you about the relationship with your siblings, because like you said, they were all in university by the time you were, I mean, you were still what, like four or five when they were starting university? Because on yeah. one hand, I can look at it and be like, you have a great elder support group, but at the same time, because you can't get into the same thing, you can't do the same things they're doing. Would you feel like in some moments you were kind of like an only child? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, they were off at university, right? So um, we had great times when they were home. Um, but I spent most of my time as an only kid. Yeah. Like you said, you spent some of your time as an only child. I noticed that your hobbies and interests aren't related to team sports. Like, correct uh, yeah. me if I'm wrong. Yeah, you're a runner and you're a cross-country skier. How did you find those two sports? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I did play soccer and volleyball as well, It's but I gravitated towards uh, running and cross-country, which, like, in a way, they're team sports as well. Uh, I, I was a sporty kid. I was pretty athletic. I think that I came to a realization when I wasn't that old that I didn't have the vision on the field or the basketball court or whatever that would uh, allow me to be really great at, at team sports. There was kind of too much going on to keep track of it. Uh, and that, so I gravitated towards sports that are individuals. I mean, they are t team sports as well in the sense that, you know, you tend to be training with teammates, cheering them on, but, your performance is down to your own grit and determination and fitness and commitment kind of thing. It's kind and of like I, swimming. Cause there's like a sense of cooperation. Like you train with them, you, you show up to these meets on the team, but there's really only one gold medal and the gold medal is not going to the team. It's going to whoever crosses the line first. Yeah, I think that's true. And um, cross country, both running and skiing also have kind of a team event though. So um you know, it's in your competition is a good word for it. It's in your interest to um, work with your teammates, your peers, to so that everybody's improving. Did you get into running first and then cross country skiing, or was it the other way around? Because I kind of look at this kind of like the same way hockey players will take up lacrosse in the summer, even though there is summer hockey now. Like, is that kind of uh, the right observation there? Yeah, it actually it happened in quick succession. It's funny. I was a terrible runner in grade seven and eight. Uh, but it seemed like a fun thing to do in grade nine. And there was a, my brother had gone through the same high school and this, it was the same cross country coach. Um, and I'd grown just enough that, um, I got in, I did cross country and it turned out that I was actually pretty fast. Um, and the, the cross country running crowd turned into the cross country skiing crowd. And, and my high school was kind of big at both of those things. They're, they're kind of Ottawa sports in my mind. Um, and so I just kind of fell into cross country. I'd always skied a little bit as a kid, but competitive skiing and, you know, backcountry skiing is not the same thing. Who would you consider your influences to be? It's such an interesting question. I, I had a bunch of teachers, uh, at, you know, in that period who were really important influences. I found that I gravitated towards, um, teachers that had really high standards, um, I kind of enjoyed being challenged that way. And 
it's funny. I was listening to your podcast with Ron Tyke the other day, and he talked about how his mom was uh, a hero to him. And I mean, that sounds just a kind of an epic story. Um, but you know, my I'd say my mom is uh, certainly an influence. I mean, I actually she, I was an only kid to a single mother at that time, um, and she uh, is a really interesting woman who's like really pretty courageous in her way. Uh, so I think I take, I've taken influences from all over the place. Um, but those would be two, two kind of areas of pull, the sort of high standard setting teachers and, uh, and my mom. What was your first job ever? Picked up a couple of jobs in high school. I think like one of the things I feel like I uh, picked up along the way is how important some part-time jobs can be to your development. You learn a lot of practical skills. Uh, so I worked in a summer camp for a while, and then I settled into working at the running room, uh, which if you're not familiar with it, it's you know a chain of running shoe stores uh, across the country. There's a lot more now than there used to be. Uh, and it was founded by this guy who discovered running in his 50s. It's got a really neat kind of community vibe. It's the place to go if you need hands-on advice about what running shoes to wear and how to improve your running. Uh, so it was a neat place to work. And I, I, I learned a lot about um, how retail works and, and like, especially how to sell uh, like a sort of service sell as opposed to a hard sell. One of my old managers back in the day, she was a big runner. And she was very particular about her shoe brand. Like I told her I picked up a pair of Skechers Go Runs and she looked at me sideways. Did you have a particular brand? Because that's what I've noticed about hardcore runners is that they're incredibly loyal. And some of the brands, because I am familiar with the running room, some of the brands that they sell there don't make their way onto the shelves at, shelves at like Champs or Foot Locker. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah, the different set of shoes altogether. I had two or three, set, two or three brands that I was pretty loyal to uh, that they just fit my feet pretty well. One of the things that I really, uh, I got good at, at the running room was um, when someone came in, I had a pretty clear idea of what shoes they were going to leave in from, I don't even know how I knew. I mean, sometimes it was obvious they had, they brought in their last pair and they loved it. But sometimes uh, I just had a sense the way they were carrying themselves uh, or the way they were describing how they were running. And I, I developed a really good skill, not no, not just knowing what shoe they were going to leave with, but what shoes to bring out to make it easy for them to choose the right shoes for them. Uh, you know, one that was similar but more expensive and one that was completely different. It was kind of, it was neat training in uh, how to make decisions easier. Okay, so what was your brand? I know you mentioned that there were three of them, but you're on a deserted island. You can only take one of them with you. <laughs> what would it be? I feel like I wouldn't be running on a deserted island. But, um, <laughs> You'd be writing SOS with your feet in the sand. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we'd be doing. Um, Asics and uh, Mizunos. Mizunos were my favorite. They were uh, nice and wide and fast. You mentioned early on that you uh, wanted to get to a big city. University was your opportunity for that. Why did you pick the University of Toronto? Because you could have picked Ryerson or Toronto Metropolitan U or York. And why did you choose to study cinema studies and semiotics? At the time, I imagine, I mean, it's still the case, I guess. Toronto, U of T had the bigger reputation of the three schools. Uh, and I always wanted to go to a 
relatively prestigious school. Uh, I was a pretty academic teenager, mostly. Um, so U of T seemed like a good place to go. One of the things I liked about starting there was I didn't need to declare a major. I didn't realize like there are other places where you do need to have a really clear idea of where you want to go, not so much in Canada, but in other countries. Um, so I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do at U of T. Um, I, I took a range of courses in first year and um, I loved cinema, the first year cinema class. Uh, the teacher, like I was talking about earlier, he was tough. He was super cool. He, uh, one of his claim to fame was that he had interviewed Bruce Springsteen uh, for Rolling Stone. Um, but he set super high standards and film was just such a fascinating discipline. It's, so at U of T, it's not about production. It's about film history and theory. And um, you get to see such an interesting lens on the world and how technology informs the way that we communicate and um, how the film business works uh, while enjoying just beautiful storytelling. So I got, I got sucked in. And um, semiotics is this kind of quirky field uh, that I've seen a couple of rumblings about it in the marketing effectiveness literature in the UK recently, but it, it, it is the kind of a European fancy academic way of looking at cultural theory. So it borrows from linguistics and um, philosophy and art history. And really what it aims to do is to understand how we communicate. Um, and so there's a certain amount of lap, overlap between cinema and semiotics and the prof who I was really impressed by um, also taught in the semiotics department. So I kind of fell into this weird combination of classes that allowed me to take psych and English and art history and all kinds of different classes that were all related to the disciplines. And, you know, I learned a lot um, along the way. I think if I could go back, I might have done a little bit more STEMI stuff. You know, economics is a pretty interesting field. I wish I was a little bit better trained in, um, but there, uh, it was just a really interesting time. I learned all kinds of interesting things about the world and how it's evolved. I also took a first year film class. Was there a specific unit that was covered that appealed to you? Because the way it was broken up for me when I was in university was, is that we would tackle certain genres or certain eras within film. And it would go all the way back to like Orson Welles, right down to like John Wayne and the Westerns and so forth. So was there anything that, I don't know, if captivated you or surprised you? Something that you were already aware of, but you didn't know it, didn't know it as well as you did until you had completed that unit? I guess there's like a bunch of things, but I, I really liked film theory and the, um, you know, the unpacking how the communication happens in film. The, the sort of, we didn't do a lot of shot by shot analysis, but just enough to understand the way that the brain makes connections between images and uh, sound. Uh, you know, we take it for granted because we just watch film all the time, but, and TV shows, but it, there, there's a definite science to it. So I, I really like that. And um, one of my favorite things was a little bit later, um, and I, um, talked a little bit about it in uh, presentations is this book called Six Guns in Society and it's done by a psych 
sociologist. Uh, and what he did was he uh, broke down the plot points and the narrative points of the top grossing Westerns in the US, like Western, like John Wayne, John Ford, through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Some Clint Eastwood's got to be mixed in there as well, too. Fistful of Silver Dollars comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, yeah. Um, and what he demonstrates really beautifully is that there's this significant shift in the way the stories are told, that in the 50s and 60s, uh, more like the 40s and 50s, it um, there is uh, a loner who uh, comes into town and there's a bad guy who threatens the town and he has to protect the town and he does so and then he uh, then he leaves. But then you get to the sort of late 60s and 70s and the films are more like The Magnificent Seven where it's like a team of experts all with different sets of skills like Ocean's Eleven later on. They all come together to pull off a specific job and then they go off. And that job isn't necessarily about the town. It might be about fighting the bad guys. And what this author does is he links, so he makes, a, shows really elegantly how consistent this change is over the years. And he links it to changes in society and the economy of the US from a sort of small business, um, small town based economy to a corporate economy. And so he makes the point that. Um, cinema is a really important piece of how people interpret the world. Uh, you know, that it's, you know, kind of going back to ancient narratives told around the, the fire, you know, the, or the myths of ancient Greece, that we still have it, have that type of need for explaining the world around us in a way that we don't necessarily um, understand rationally, but it, um, if you are a filmmaker who gets it, even implicitly, you're going to get uh, better returns at the box office. Uh, I just thought it was such a neat idea. Um, and I kind of look out for it in the world around us. You know, the Magnificent Seven has now become, um, you know, Avengers Endgame, where it's not just one team of experts, it's uh, teams of teams of experts from around the galaxy who. So the same kind of plot is still playing out, but in a more globalized corporate setup. Okay, so when you started at U of T, you mentioned that you were undeclared and then you found your way into cinema studies and semiotics. At that point, were you starting to think about what was next for you after graduation? No, I mean, kind of. Um, I've always admired the people that knew what they wanted to do. And part of me wishes I was one of those people, but I didn't know. So you were looking at yourself and saying, other people might be looking at university like what is going to be my direct ROI five years after graduation. You were looking at yourself saying, I'm going to be here for four, maybe five years. I want to make sure whatever I'm doing for that time is something that I enjoy. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess I'm showing my educational privilege there. No, uh, no, there's my, nothing wrong with being an academic. My my dad was a professor uh, at Ottawa U. So I guess it like I always assumed I was going to go to university and I didn't come from one of those families where there was an expectation of a direct payback. Uh, it was a neat time to explore kind of thing. When you graduated though, you didn't stick around. You packed up and you left for London. What brought you to the UK? My then girlfriend, now wife, got a job in publishing in the UK. Uh, so that was the thing that actually got me out the door. 
but um, it also had to do with the fact that it seemed like a great place to spend a year in your 20s. Um, I've got, both my parents are Brits, so there's, I've got lots of uncles and aunts and cousins, and um, it felt like an interesting city to figure out what career I wanted and to get started in it. How was your time in London compared to Toronto? Because you mentioned leaving Ottawa for the big city, but London could swallow up Toronto. I loved it. It was amazing. Um, so we kind of intended to stay a year and we ended up staying seven um, because it really hooked us in. Um, there's such a neat energy. There's always stuff going on. It's hard, hard work. Like the hours at work were long. It was hard to get the grocery shopping done. It was hard to make ends meet and all that. But uh, it's such a thrilling city and it's so close to in other interesting places. And the caliber of work was super interesting too. Like it's um, when it comes to the media business, it's a much bigger and in some ways more sophisticated market. So there were all kinds of interesting ideas flying around and opportunities to learn new things. And you got the opportunity to join Zenith in the UK. I guess, can we say when their digital department was not necessarily on the ground floor, but pretty much starting? Yeah, it was, that was a neat, neat opportunity. Um, I'd done a, um, I'd, I'd been in London long enough to figure that what I actually wanted to do was to be a strategic planner at a creative agency. Uh, and I did a little internship at DPH, which at the time was a super cool hotshot agency still is i think um but and I, it was clear it was going to be too hard to get in there you needed to be a really exceptional talent who went to cambridge or oxford kind of thing uh but the guy that i was interning with said go check out media like that's where things are really developing they're going to have more and more influence in the years ahead and i think he was right so I, in the UK, it's pretty common, at least it was at the time, for them to have kind of open calls for grads, grad, graduates to go in and chat. And I met with most of the agencies and I got an offer at Zed Digital, it was called at the time. Uh, it was the digital and direct agency within Zenith Optimedia. So there was like uh, a lot of DRTV going on uh, and newspaper drops and banners and that kind of thing. And yeah, ground floor, absolutely. like. There was 20 or 30 of people when I joined and it grew threefold in the next two years. Um, I got to learn a lot about buying banners because that's what you did at the time. Uh, and also I got to set up their search department. Uh, you know, as someone with about 18 months of experience in the business, that was a pretty neat opportunity. Um, and I, I learned a ton there that there were a, a lot of smart people who've gone on to do really interesting things from there. Your work there, though, spanned how many different markets? And can we also say not just the number of different markets, but a number of different languages as well? What was it like grappling with that? Yeah, it was super neat. So the main the client I got hired to work on was HP, and they had this network of resellers in 14 European markets. So the big five and then. Finland and uh, Sweden and Denmark. And um, so they were running a multinational demand generation campaign. And I got to be the person who coordinated it and reported on it. Uh, I mean, the language of discussion was English, um, but it was pretty neat to learn about 
the different markets, the sort of different media marketplaces in each of them as well. Okay, and, that's the point I wanted to double down on a little bit is because this is back in like the pre-programmatic days. So you were calling people up and doing these bookings direct. So you had to, you had to have an understanding, like you mentioned Sweden, you had to have an understanding as to, you know, what the big media players were within Stockholm or within Sweden altogether. Yeah. I mean, there were starting to be ad net. I mean, there were ad networks. Uh, so we did a little bit of that, but you're right. We also need to know what was going on in Sweden. And um, we did some of that in, in London, but actually one of the things that was really neat about this journey was, um, it was a anchor client to help to establish a network. So there were Zenith Optimedia or Zenith and Optimedia offices um, all across the region where there might've been like one and a half digital planners. Um, and having a multinational client allowed us to kind of tie them together and learn what the leading newspaper is in Sweden often lauded, I think, that was being read by like 80% of Swedes in a given day. I learned a lot about local media, but I met, we were lucky enough to learn it from people who were on the ground. I think that made, certainly at the time, it made a big difference. Your final role in the UK was digital planning director. So what did all of that entail? It was a really exciting time. So we had this momentum uh, at Zed Digital. And it became clear to the people who worked in Zenith Optimedia International, so um, that they needed to take digital seriously. Like the so there was ZOI as it was known had a remit to run international business, but it hadn't they hadn't been able to do anything in digital before. And when they saw what we were managing to do, building a network uh, around HP's business, they realized they needed to integrate that within the larger strategic business. So I kind of had no business to do this role in two years experience, but uh, it was such a, a fascinating opportunity to help this department establish the digital expertise. Um, and what it meant was I got to get exposed to all kinds of neat ideas. So they had um, pretty sophisticated senior clients who ha typically had sort of a regional responsibility to hold, to, to guide local markets and how to execute effectively um, in their advertising. So, you know, we would be talking to the uh, marketing director of Europe for Toyota who would be managing pan-European campaigns, but most of his role was coordinating with the local markets and helping to set high standards and help them understand how their advertising was working. And so it meant that I got to learn by watching people who were really amazing comms planners and presenters and people who were doing um, some pretty leading edge research about uh, the touch points that had the most impact. Uh, on advertising effectiveness. It was such a neat opportunity to, to broaden my understanding from being a digital guy to a digital guy who needed to be able to contextualize what the channel was doing to a pretty senior and sophisticated audience. When living in London, did you adopt a soccer team or a football team? Huh, I did. Okay, yeah. who do you support? Well, I landed in London 
just as um, the Arsenal were establishing themselves as um, the most amazing team in the world. Uh, and so uh, there are a couple <laughs> of years before they had their invincible season and went unbeaten. Um, so yeah, I'm, a, I'm an Arsenal fan and I still am. So did you make it to Highbury or uh, Emirates? I got to Highbury, I got to Emirates um, and Craven Cottage. Uh, and actually, I'm envious there. Fulham's my team, so I'm a little oh, envious there. Oh, yeah, when the view, every time I've been to London, they've always had the tour closed. I think they just changed a stand, right? But it's a it's a good little uh, stadium. I, I really liked it. Did you see the Michael Jackson statue? I did not see the Michael Jackson. No, the uh, yeah, Mohammed Al Fayed, the former owner of Fulham. Michael Jackson showed up to a game and he wanted to commemorate it, and it was like a statue went up. And then it, I don't know how long it was up for, but the fans, you know, the fans control the teams more so than the owners do, but they pushed back and they got the statue taken down because it didn't make any sense whatsoever that there was the statue of Michael Jackson outside of Craven Cottage. No, yeah. a little envious there that you got to see that. So what did you enjoy more, Highbury, the character there or, or Emirates? Because I got to see Emirates uh, the year it was opened. I uh, was backpacking through and I took the tour and I kind of wish I'd had a chance to see the character that was that was Highbury. I mean, Highbury definitely has had more character. The Emirates is totally epic, though. It, it is. The, the experience of seeing a Premier League game, wherever you see it, is just such a foreign concept to a uh, Canadian sports fan in the way that the fans get into it and they chant. And, uh, it's pretty electric. I, like, you get some of that at some TSC games, I think, but not at the same scale. And... So yeah, the Emirates, I would say, is certainly more epic. And I think I saw more games there than I did at Highbury. So I probably had more fondness there. Did you make it down to Twickenham to see a rugby match? I did not, no. I got a chance to see a rugby match. And I got to tell you, the atmosphere and even getting up to the stadium before the, the match would start kind of reminded me of going to like Ralph Will or New Era Stadium to see a Buffalo Bills game. Like there were a lot of parallels there. I mean, oh, the on-field the, the on product completely different. It was Scotland versus Italy and Italy won and Scotland was not happy, but no. uh, there were a lot of parallels. That's interesting. It hadn't occurred to me that the Bills might have the kind of vibrancy that you'd expect at a big Twickenham match. Yeah, they, they definitely do. This one wasn't at Twickenham. This was at Murrayfield in Edinburgh, but uh, I imagine oh, it was neat. still, still pretty, oh, still pretty close. That would make a lot spicy. <laughs> yeah, they, the, uh, the Italians scored their first try within like the first 30 seconds of the game. And you know how unlike up here, they have like a supporter section where they'll actually bring in the opposing team behind mm -hmm. on one end. Yeah, yeah. The Italians were going crazy. And then you, they were like wearing these Italian, like Afro wigs, like red, white, and green. And then they slowly receded their clapping as they realized they were in the minority <laughs> there. And then they went on to win. No one saw it coming. Yeah. That's funny. That sounds like a great experience. We're going to take a quick break. Enjoying this episode? Of course you are, or you wouldn't have made it this far. Complement your listening experience by subscribing to the Media People newsletter at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or at mediapeople.beehive.com. It's a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or mediapeople.beehive.com. Okay, so what brought you back to Toronto then? Well, we'd been there seven years. We'd gotten married and we were ready to have kids. And um, it seemed like Toronto was going to be a better place to do that from a 
family point of view and from a cost of living point of view. So we cut it pretty fine. We were back in September of 2008. My son was born in December. Did uh, your previous role at Zenith in the UK help you land at Zenith in Toronto? I got a good word from the UK that helped a lot um, to help me make that transition. Yeah. What was it like settling back into Toronto? Because now you're back in a city that you've been away from for seven years and you're in an industry. And I mean this in a most sincere way to anyone from the Toronto media industry. I want, even though it's pretty fast paced here, I have to imagine it's still a little bit more, a little bit slower than what you were used to back in London. I'm not saying yeah. it's slow. I'm just saying slower. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting experience. It was, um, it made me realize, uh, I mean, part of the agency business is your experience of the agency has a lot to do with the clients that you're working with. Um, and I had a little bit taken for granted how progressive and innovative uh, and knowledgeable my clients in Europe had been as it relates specifically to media. Um, and when I landed in Toronto, I found uh, that it was a very different business um, where there was a lot less specialization in media. And I think that's still the case. Like we, there, I mean, it's a little bit less now than it was then because there are, it's more likely that you have you know, in-house media teams than before. And we worked with a bunch of them. Um, but when I landed, I came from working with people on the client side who knew as much or more about media than I did sometimes to um, being the person who knew everything about media and had to talk the client's language instead and really, you know, talk fast and um, clearly. And, and, and um, so that... That was interesting. I guess the other thing that I missed was I built all kinds of relationships. You know, I think in this business, I think it's probably still true. Your 20s, or it's about to be post-pandemic, your 20s is a really useful time to build relationships with your peers within the agency and with sellers of media uh, and with clients because, you know, there's lots of opportunities to go out and party and so on. Um, I think that was more the case in, in London than here, but it was also hard to tell because I was home with a baby. Uh, I had other priorities. Um, but there was definitely a different vibe. Uh, I had learned a lot in the UK and I needed to kind of relearn it all for a Canadian context. Something I hear from my peers that have had a chance to work abroad especially in London and, and uh, the United States, is they say that Canada seems to be one to two years behind in technical opportunities. Did you find that that was the case when you came back to Canada? Certain things that you could utilize or lean on in London were unavailable to you or they were being slowly rolled out? Yeah, I absolutely found that. Um, you know, I'd been working on this HP account that had tagging on 40 different stores across Europe and we were doing analysis using their ad server log files. And, you know, we were super excited when we launched a new ad server that allowed us to do overlap reports, like things that um, we even today don't get done all the time. Um, and we were doing 
super interesting research about um you know the effectiveness of advertising that you know that was not something that was happening in 2004 with any regularity in toronto sorry 2009 so yeah and i mean i think we still feel that right and the the reality of canada in terms of a market size um a lot of the really interesting innovation that's happening in places like the us kind of requires scale not so much the number of people in the market but that's part of it but you know a lot of the interesting data innovation in the us requires a competitive marketplace of players that need scale in order to do the most interesting analysis and targeting and compete with each other and the combination of our smaller market and our privacy infrastructure means that there's a lot of technical innovation that isn't happening in this marketplace on the I other think- hand i think there's all kinds of interesting things that do happen here like having fancy tech is only part of doing great media um what i got excited about pretty early in my career here but it's been like a real passion for me over the last little while is how because so many of our clients are relatively lean organizations you can really adapt the strategy and the technology and the systems and the data to their specific needs like there's not one size fits all and i think in a marketplace like the us or the uk there are a lot more people who can do a lot of fancy things but it tends to be a step or two further away from the core needs of the business i find this setup in canada where we can really get to understand what a business needs and really focus in on that and what assets a business has that they can bring to the media table um i think it's super exciting sometimes it happens a little bit slower right like uh you know probably in the US to get privacy approvals from the legal department there's a specialist in the legal department who thinks about those things um and that's not the case in Canada that can drag things on a lot but um i think the potential in Canada is super interesting after a career at zenith that lasted what would you say 7 or 8 years yeah that sounds about right you moved on to phd so what prompted the change it wasn't my choice exactly um i was asked to leave zenith um which you know i think that relationship had run its course for mutual reasons in retrospect and it was kind of a release uh, for me so i got to spend some time really understanding what the rest of the agency market was like in Canada at the time in uh 2012 I guess something like that um and that was neat I got an opportunity to sort of go around and and meet the various agencies and agency leaders and get a little bit of a feel for different cultures I imagine you get uh a fair amount of that in your role and Oh yeah we, we get to know a lot of the agencies when you're in sales you have to talk to everyone I bet. Yeah. And every every agency's got a little bit of a different feel, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, different some of them, you can see the parallels, but a lot of them are different as night and day. Is that still true even post pandemic? It's 
how can I put it? It's I will admit that it can sometimes see a little bit commoditized because a lot of it is video call after video call after video call. The interesting thing is, is that in my capacity, and I've been in, I've been doing sales since 2008, been in digital sales since 2010, getting any sort of meeting was always a little bit on the difficult side, unless you were part of like the Googles or the metas. But I found if I can get someone interested in what we're selling, no problem getting a video call. And it seems like the only thing blocking an in-person meeting, whereas it could have been time before or whether or not they wanted to see me. Now it seems to be just 100% time where it's just like, Vic, we're only in the office one to two days a week. And we've already got internal meetings blocking up the mornings on both days. And we've got standing meetings with with this big player and that big player, so we can't squeeze you in. So it's it's not really by choice, but more by design. But I'd find that getting getting video calls are a lot easier. And I think people want to talk more. I think that... Uh, the impact of just remote work is taking its toll. Like there's, I think people consciously or subconsciously are weighing kind of the benefits of, oh, if I can roll out of bed and roll right into work and not have a commute versus, well, if I do have a commute, I still get to see my peers and I get to have that certain level of like interpersonal interaction that we otherwise didn't have prior to that. But you're still seeing, like putting that aside, there's still definitely differences in the way agencies are running themselves. Like when I do get a chance to come in and, and actually do a walk around or present to the agencies, I find that more and more people are coming to the in-person meetings just because they want to be part of the meetings. Like you'll have people that you know you're not going to call on or shouldn't be part of it, but they still want to see what, they still want to learn something. So they still want to be part of that kind of like community. So it's like those kind of intrinsic things or interpersonal things that we're not talking about that I'm seeing. Yeah, that's super interesting. The I mean, the days in the office... Um, because there are fewer of them, they do end up being a lot more intense in some ways. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've I've had a lot of uh, I've had a lot of meetings that were supposed to happen in person canceled at the last second, just by virtue of again, like you said, it's so much more intense. There are other deliverables that they have to get done internally. Uh, but there's definitely something to be said for the in-person experience as well. Um, I mean, I'm I'm definitely feeling. Uh, for some people, it's a major commitment to get into the office. Uh, so I'm definitely sympathetic for that. But on the other hand, uh, people really understand each other better and they understand uh, the way the agency works and how the business works a lot better if they're able to sit next to each other or you know, sit in on a meeting that may not be directly related to what they're doing at the day. They probably learn a lot from your presentations. Learning how to talk to people as well, certain soft skills like being able to read a room, being able to present. I mean, holding people accountable too. Like, how many times have you been on a call and you see the Hollywood squares on Zoom or Teams, and mm -hmm. one by one the cameras start to turn off? And I can tell you, as a sales professional, if you're on slide three and the cameras start to turn off, it's kind of like, how can I put it? It'd be like being a being like in a stage play or a musical, and then watching people one by one mid song get up and leave their seats. It's like it, you all of a sudden start to zap your focus. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, one of the things I liked least about the pandemic was trying to pitch online um, because so much of pitching is seeing the reactions. Yes. Um, and, you know, to put all your heart and soul into making a great presentation and really have no idea how it's landing is really tough. So I can I can relate to that. I wanted to ask you a question about that sort of in-between period when you were looking for a new job after being let go from Zenith. Cause I kind of half joke with, with my peers in the industry that there's like two groups of people. 
those that have been let go from a job and those that will be let go from a job. And we're kind yeah. of like, we're all, we're all at some point, we're all in the latter, but we all transition to the former. So when you were, when you were out of work and you were looking for a job, did you find that that was, I don't want to say it was hurting you, but people were questioning that in, um, in the interview. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I, I want you to shed light on that experience because there are so many people out there that have been let go for whatever reason. And they kind of feel like it's a dark cloud over their head when they go into interview and they don't know how to address that. So if you're cool talking about that, great. I'd love to know how, how you handled that little portion of your job search. It was definitely a blow, uh, an emotional blow to, to be let go. Uh, but as I said, it was freeing too. And I had, um, I gave myself a little bit of time to regroup and uh, think about what I wanted to do and kind of recommit to media. Um, and I spent time listening to some really useful podcasts about uh, how to approach uh, the interview process and so on. And I would say that, I mean, I probably had 10 interviews. I ha Having that amount of digital experience at the time was kind of in demand. So I didn't have a lot of trouble meeting with people. And generally, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a particular black mark. There, there might have been a couple where it felt like mm, I'm being judged on that. Uh, but I think you're right. That's a great way to put it. You know, people are in one or two buckets and people who are, have been around long enough to be hiring people, especially people with a little bit of experience, tend to have that perspective. They understand that. You know, I think it's probably true, especially on the sales side, but also on the agency side, that the needs of businesses change and, uh, you know, the salary pool goes up and down and the profile of the people that need, uh, that are needed changes. And just because someone wasn't the right fit at an organization doesn't mean they won't be the right fit for you. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I think if you feel like you've got a black cloud, probably worth spending some time pushing through that and wrapping your head around it and so that you can not worry about it when it actually comes to meeting with people because I, I don't think it's as big as you think it is. How did the opportunity at PhD present itself? You know, I think that I benefited from having a positive relationship with someone on the sell side. A long time ago, I'm trying to remember, but I think she put in a good word for me. Uh, and I can't remember, I think I must have applied as well. They were looking for a digital director, I had that title. Um, and I came in for a meeting, and I guess I said the right things, and I got hired. And I was really, really, I'd heard a little, a couple of things about PhD, and I'd seen, um, so I'd seen cases, uh, not too long before, um, Caroline Wool, who's now the president, had done some neat stuff and written cases up about it that were probably awarded at the MIAs. And I'd seen um, the the CMUST report that Rob Young was making that kind of blew my mind. So I had a little bit of a sense of what PhD was about, um, but uh, I was really really pleased, you know, even within a couple of weeks when I landed, I realized um, 
it actually reminded me of the UK in some ways, that there was a curiosity um, and a sophistication to the way that PhD was approaching media planning and um, that felt more like home for me than uh, Zenith in Canada had. It felt actually a lot like Zenith in the UK had. You move into a different role eventually. You become the managing director of communications planning. So what did that entail and how did it differ from your previous role? I grew up in digital. I've always loved it. Um, What I found frustrating was being on the wrong part of the process. Like, uh, I guess I'm a little bit of a questioner by nature. And uh, so I found it frustrating to get briefs that were missing the point from my point of view uh, that weren't making the right connections that didn't have the right kind of insights and i'd had just enough exposure to um, communications planning which is a relative it was a relatively established discipline in the uk um, i had just enough exposure to that that i could um, help clients figure out Uh, how to make the transition into really embracing digital. And like part of that was really understanding what the other channels were doing too. Um, But there is a kind of art to wrapping your head around who it is we really need to target, what it is that we want to say to convince them to do think the way that we want them to think and and how do we deploy that in media. Um, That it starts to flirt with creative and even more than that, it flirts with, um, you know, budgeting and uh, messaging prioritization and business line prioritization, that kind of thing. So um, I've had enough exposure in the UK that and uh, there was enough expertise in building a PhD that we tried to turn it into a discipline. Um, and uh, it was a great experience. It was uh, a really neat opportunity to look more creatively at how our clients were going to market with advertising. Your promotion to managing director marketing science. Okay, so let's bring everything full circle. The first thing I wanted to ask is, was this a net new role at PhD? Like, were you the first person to jump into it or was, or was there a predecessor, someone else who had been doing marketing science for the agency in a formalized way? So I was the first person to have the title of marketing science, but Um, So PhD is now a global network, but it uh, it previously was an independent agency in Canada that got acquired by Omnicom. Um, And the previous agency was HYP and N, and the Y stands for Young. Rob Young was one of the founders, and uh, he is kind of the OG marketing scientist. Um, So... We didn't call it that, but um, he didn't call it that. I think he, his uh, title on retirement was something like research and insights or something, but he, he was a, a marketing scientist. And uh, so in a way I took on the role from him and also the world's changed a ton. So I learned a lot from him around um, classical media research and uh, a lot about how the business works, uh, how primary research works. And actually, he had been doing marketing mixed modeling uh, 
in his corner office at PhD since 2000. Um, and so uh, I had a really wonderful partnership with him for three or four years where we worked together really closely. I brought uh, what I'd learned from digital. I learned a ton from him. And we also brought, we, we started to establish a team of people who brought really useful perspectives. Um, so Winston Lee, who uh, founded ARIMA more recently, uh, was the first addition to the team. He uh, was just wrapping up his PhD in stats from U of T. And he helped us really take big steps in um, how we were thinking about uh, analytics and how to turn marketing mixed modeling into something that was much more vibrant and forward looking than um, what the rest of the marketplace was doing. So yeah, I was the first person with a marketing science type title, but it's definitely part of a continuum and one that's continuing to evolve in really interesting ways. Matt, is it safe to say you've been in the industry for 20, 25 years? Uh, yeah, I was looking at that. I guess it's, it, um, I started in November of 2004. Oh, coming up on 20 years then I'd say. Yeah. This would be your yeah. 20th year. Okay, so 20 years, you've been at three companies. I guess, actually, I guess you could sort of say two companies, even though I know Zenith in uh, the UK was a different entity to Zenith in Canada. But let, let's just call it two companies for argument's sake. That's not something you see much of in the media industry, where someone sticks around at a company, grows through, grows throughout that company. And I mean, if you look at Zenith, had you not been let go, there's a good chance you probably might have still been there. So what is the attraction to staying at a company? Like what kind of challenges present themselves that keep you there versus, say, being tempted by, I guess, outside influences or outside opportunities? Because everyone in this industry, when you get to a certain level, gets headhunted. It's a good question. I I did look around at various points in my career. Uh, and I guess what I found was actually I was pretty happy with where I was. Um, I mean, my time at Zenith was pretty rapid fire, um, you know, two, two year stints before landing at PhD um, a long time ago now. Um, and in my time at PhD, I have looked around, I've looked at other opportunities and I just have felt that the clients here are often really interesting. Um, I think that I thrive in situations where um, there's a certain amount of familiarity. You know, I, I, was, I wasn't the kid who could read a rapidly evolving, evolving basketball court, you know, um, and I'm, I'm a grown up that benefits from uh, understanding the personalities around me a little bit. And uh, there are plenty of people here that I've kind of grown up with and I really, uh, I get. So, and, and I do have slightly unconventional skills and backgrounds. You know, I'm a marketing scientist, but I haven't got a fancy quant degree. Uh, I grew up in digital, but I kind of like the comms planning, big picture stuff. And um, PhD has given me the space to evolve the role with the needs of the business in such a way that has always worked really well together. I guess I would also say PhD tends to be one of the places that people stick. Not everybody. Some people come and find it's not quite right or they come and they find other opportunities, but 
there are lots of people here who've been here for a long time. So it's not that unusual for us. Matt, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Okay, the campaign you are most proud of. There's all kinds of neat work that we're doing right now, uh, like last year, this year with Scotiabank and, and Unilever especially. Um, and I think, you know, as an agency, we're super proud of that and I'm proud to contribute in a slightly more removed way. I think the one that stands out for me was like one of the earliest campaigns I ever did over oversaw um, my boss at the time we were planning a campaign for British Airways to attract people to London my boss in this big meeting kind of threw away hey we should make a mobile app for that uh, and it was 2005 and like mobile apps weren't really a thing um, but the client nodded their head like that was a good idea uh, and so I got to run with it and I got to figure out what that looked like and find a supplier and turn it into a story to sell, not just the clients in London, but all the local markets. Uh, and it was really neat. And uh, I didn't have to get all of that involved in the technical stuff because it was kind of mind-bogglingly complicated back in those days. You know, it wasn't, the, it wasn't iOS and Android. It was, you know, lots of different Nokias and Sony Ericsson's and stuff. Um, but it worked beautifully. Uh, the the app was a really neat tour guide to London, and uh, it turned into as part of like a linchpin of a really great campaign that won some awards. And uh, it was a lot of fun to work on. Make me feel old talking about it. Um, <laughs> but actually, the it's funny. The now global CEO of PhD uh, Guy Marks uh, was working at the the vendor, the the mobile developer company that I worked with. Uh, just kind of need to come full circle a bit and see how far he's come. All right, cinema studies major, your favorite movie. Oh, there's always pressure when you get asked this, when you admit that you've done a degree in cinema and that people always have a favorite that I think should be yours too. But my absolute favorite film is called In the Mood for Love. Uh, it's from 2000 um, by a director called Wong Kar Wai. And it's just absolutely beautiful it's this kind of dreamscape of um hong, hong kong of his parents and it's a story of unrequited love but it's just the cinematography and the music uh are just incredible it's like um it's like a dream um but you know i love all kinds of films you know the princess bride is right up there and i had a ton of fun watching mean girls with uh, my kids the other day. So I, I like all kinds of films. Was it the original or the reboot, which is weird to hear that they've already done a reboot, I think less than 20 years in. So, uh, it was the original. I mean, it's, I'm not even sure the reboot's quite out yet, but, um, it, it was definitely the original. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? It's funny. I, I mean, obviously I don't want a life story. Um, did you know, I was, I was watching Aaron Brockovich with uh, my daughter the other day, and the, the real Aaron Brockovich is in a cameo uh, as a waitress in a diner. Um, I was familiar with that, yeah. As much as I'd love someone as fancy as Julia Roberts, like a Matt Damon or somebody, to um, play me, I think probably a, a Michael Sarah or a Ricky Gervais would be a... 
more appropriate fit for me. My follow-up, if Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, what would you call it? <laughs> I feel like this is a tough question. I would maybe call it connected, not in like the organized crime sense, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the there are there's a type of storytelling uh, that I really like that talks about sort of intergenerational things, you know, um, and family histories and, you know, like Bruce Springsteen has a bunch of that intergenerational stuff. And I don't know that my life is particularly interesting, but I think that as a bit of a continuum from the people before me to the people going on, uh, you know, there's probably something interesting in there. Your favorite book. One of the books that I go back to is Pride and Prejudice. Um, one of the bet upsides of living in the UK in my 20s was my grandmother was around and I spent a fair amount of time with her and Jane Austen was one of her favorite authors. And it's just such a wonderful book and it warrants rereading. So I go back to that every once in a while. Um, but there are also lots of business books that I've read that have felt super useful to me in developing my understanding of how the business world works. So like um, the Jim Collins books like Good to Great and Go Blast were super good. There is an author called Roger Martin. He used to be the dean at Rotman. Um, and he has a really neat way of work, looking at strategy and how business works. That uh, It's funny, when I read his stuff, I feel seen. I've learned a lot about the friction points I've seen in the business world by understanding the way he looks at it. Um, so, yeah, I feel like uh, I don't always make time to read books, uh, but I always regret it when I'm not. Uh, and I like to get a mix of fiction and nonfiction skewing towards business books. Your favorite song? I feel like it changes all the time. I'm really into uh, an artist called Elsa P at the moment. She's uh, done this album of covers of songs in Anuktitut and uh, they're beautifully arranged. And I, I kind of like that. I know what the words are, but I don't need to listen to the lyrics. The best advice you have ever received. To take time for yourself every single day uh, without fail. Uh, and uh, I picked that up. It was a piece. It's funny. So the IPA, the Institute of Practitioners of Advertising in the UK, they provide training and the expectation is if you're a reputable agency all of your new people get this training from the ipa and one of the things that they did was ask agency leaders for a piece of advice and this is the one that has stuck with me to this day like whether you're working 18 hours in a row or a pitch or not it's just a normal day you need to take time every day for yourself even if it's just like five minutes um and it's really useful for resetting and being kind of prepared to operate at your fullest. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? So I did two stint, two years uh, stint as a teaching assistant in London. Uh, I worked at a primary school and I kind of loved it. Um, it was, and for a long time, I thought I might want to be a teacher before that. Um, it's exhausting work. Uh, but super rewarding. Matt, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you. I think it's such a neat initiative that you have with this podcast that 
get to know the industry a bit better. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.